two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to this episode of The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the Global Head of Research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Miller, one of our senior U.S. economists. Hi, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. In this episode, we're going to talk about the intensity of the competitive pressures in the U.S. economy. Has competition declined? And if so, how can we measure it? And what are the economic consequences of a less competitive economy? In our discussion, we're going to touch on some big picture trends about the U.S. First, industrial concentration has increased. We'll talk about how much and how we measure that. Second, corporate profits are really high. Third, labor share of total output has fallen. Fourth, investment has fallen. And finally, business dynamism in the U.S. seems to have deteriorated. We're going to be looking at whether all of these trends are linked, uh, specifically whether rising market concentration is leading to elevated market power and whether that's uh, diminishing competition in U.S. markets. Uh, with the biggest company and companies in the economy dictating prices and terms for customers and suppliers and getting an outsized portion of the spoils, or whether these trends are unrelated, driven by other factors, and with competitive pressures alive and well. I will argue that comp- competition has indeed declined and that uh, the recent focus from policymakers and politicians is warranted. And I'm going to argue that the links between concentration and competition are overstated. And in fact, there are actually reasons to believe that competition has increased, which makes the prospect of regulatory intervention troubling. Before we start, let's lay some groundwork on industrial concentration. Loosely speaking, concentration is a measure of the extent to which overall activity in a given market is concentrated in the hands of a few firms. We typically measure it at the sector level, and we measure in terms of revenue or sales. There are lots of ways that it could be summarized, but the favorite metric for economists and policymakers is what's called the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, otherwise known as the HHI. It basically takes the percentage of market share for all the firms in a given market, squares them, and adds it up. So, for example, if you have one firm completely dominating the market, it shares 100%, the HHI is 10,000. In the other extreme, if there's a whole bunch of uh, very tiny firms, uh, you square uh, their shares you get it, and sum it up, you get a number pretty close to zero. So that's sort of the, the bounds of this indicator. It's pretty firmly entrenched as the workhorse indicator of, of concentration. Among other things, it's used by antitrust authorities, such as the Department of Justice, the FTC, and even by the Federal Reserve when they assess the competitiveness implications of proposed mergers or the competitiveness of the broader economy. Yeah, and Jeff and I have done some recent research that provides insight into the industrial concentration issues that we've been talking about. So what we've done is gathered data for 38 industry classifications, and that pretty much captures most of the private economy. And we start by computing various indicators, including the HHI that Jeff just talked about, uh, using data from domestic publicly traded companies. Now, one thing that happens when we aggregate these estimates across industries, we get a couple of big takeaways. One is that aggregate market concentration was pretty stable in the 1990s. But something happened at the turn of the millennium. Concentration began rising, and it's now about 60% higher than it had been then. 
Although we're used to thinking about uh, the technology industry being dominated by a number of huge titans, uh, what we learned from our data set is that this is a really broad-based development. Uh, of the 38 industries that we, that we focus on, 75% of them uh, experienced a rise in concentration since the year 2000. Now, we're glancing over some nuances in this calculation, uh, specifically around things like import penetration, uh, which obviously became important when China entered the WTO. We're also looking at public firms. We don't have data on private firms. But other economic researchers have attempted to adjust for these effects. And the broad conclusion that concentration has increased seems to hold up. Yes, and I don't think there's much disagreement amongst economists about the trend in concentration, really. Uh, the biggest disagreements are how to interpret it. So here's my position. The increase in concentration reflects weaker competitive pressures. In other words, there's been a widespread spread intensification of market power. Now, the ch chain of logic behind this argument is pretty easy to understand. So basically, start with your standard model from a microeconomic textbook where everybody in the economy is small, firms, workers, and and customers. And when you have lots of comp competitors like that, if a firm charges too much, basically the customers walk away. And if they pay their workers too little, workers just go elsewhere. So this is a world where, where uh, companies are always on their toes, and that really leads to good outcomes, very efficient outcomes, with the spoils of production spread amongst workers and amongst owners. But what happens if we tip that competitive balance with firms becoming large and everybody else still remaining small? Well, in that case, the balance of power shifts towards the firms. And the bottom line is the competitive pressures on firms weaken. Firms can then raise their profits at the expense of customers and workers by manipulating their prices. And in that case, the owners gain, but at the expense of diminished overall well-being. And customers and workers really can't do much about it because they don't have alternatives that they can look for. Typically, firms would exercise power by producing less. And this basically means that the economic pie gets smaller. And on top of this, there's incentives for firms that have a privileged position to waste resources on protecting it. And this leads to really bad implications for things like investment, for productivity growth, and for the economic growth in the overall economy. And we also tend to get more income concentrated into fewer hands, and that kind of comes at the expense of the typical worker. And these are all things that should rightly raise the attention of policymakers. Well, reduced competition would certainly be worthy of all the recent attention and I definitely understand the logic you lay out. However, we could just as plausibly say that the link between concentration and competitiveness goes in the exact opposite direction, where increased concentration is a symptom of heightened competition. This is what's known in the academic literature as the winner-take-all hypothesis. And the way this hypothesis works is something, some shock to the economy, increased the competitiveness of the economy. It could be price transparency associated with the internet so that all customers see all prices across all the different firms. Um, it could be uh, China entering the WTO, which I mentioned earlier, uh, putting competitive pressures on the economy. Either way, the rise in competition means only the most efficient and productive firms can survive. So all of the weaker players have to exit the industry. They go out of business. And so naturally what happens is market share is concentrated in these winners. Uh, the winners uh, drive others out of business. They aggregate all of the share. Um, but it's because they are more competitive than the firms that are exiting. That's actually a very exciting possibility. In this view, what 
these large firms are delivering outcomes that look a lot like the perfect competition framework you laid out from the microeconomics textbooks. Lots of investment, lots of innovation, increased efficiency, and they're delivering those efficiencies to consumers in the forms of lower prices or better goods and services. And if you view the world through that lens, we would actually prefer policymakers not intervene in markets to address increased concentration because they'll be interfering in what's actually a quite a beneficial process. Right. So uh, to help highlight some of the ambiguities between these two positions, let's lay out on an example. So let's start with uh, the retail sector. So everybody knows the story for the retail sector. We've had a big increase in concentration, first from Walmart entering, then from Amazon entering, and they both gained market share really at the expense of weaker, weaker competitors, that have, competitors that have been forced out of the market. In the market power view, the scale of these firms allows them to dictate terms. So this isn't really your, quite your great-grandfather's monopolist and uh, that they're raising prices. As we know, these companies really pride themselves in having low prices for their customers, and, and that's a good thing. But instead, they use their market power to gain profits at, in other ways that are not so good. They squeeze their suppliers, which they can do because, because of their scale. And as a large employer, they can dictate wages in cer certain segments of the market, or they can even affect government policy. So there's lots of examples of this, such as uh, recently when uh, Amazon opposed a new employment tax in Seattle to fund uh, affording affordable housing. And in my interpretation, the rise of e-commerce is actually a perfect example of how new, more productive and efficient entrants into a market can force incumbents to either invest and innovate or go out of business. So the biggest firms have developed scale economies, they force prices lower, and only some of the incumbents are able to keep up with that. Because of the higher tr price transparency, and in this case it's because of the internet, there's really no place for the weaker players to hide. Uh, any of the incumbents that have survived have had to invest in online channels, better logistics, they have to provide people free delivery, all of that benefits consumers. So sure, some companies don't survive the transition and, and as a result the remaining companies have higher share. But consumers get better prices, they get free delivery, they don't get ripped off because they get to see exactly what prices everyone's charging. Um, which sounds to me like the competitive forces are alive and well. So now that we pointed out the dilemma in interpreting the rise in concentration, let's turn to the link between concentration and some of these big macro trends. I think this will help demonstrate why I think market power has risen. Let's start with corporate profits and labor share of overall income. So corporate profits are at near records right now as a share of income, and this seems to be a clear sign that competition is impaired. You simply shouldn't be able to sustain profits at these high levels in a competitive economy. In a competitive economy, that should attract new entrants and force their margins down and compete away those profits. The labor share of income tells us a very similar story. Now, before the year 2000, it used to hover around 64% in the non-farm business sector. Now it's more like 56%. And this is completely out of historical concept, context. So uh, prior to, prior to uh, 2000, uh, we'd never seen it drop below 60%. And this is really just the other side of the coin of rising profits. Companies with market power can get away with distributing less income to workers because employees just don't have many, many options. Now, you might claim that these trends are isolated to just a few industries or that they're unrelated to concentration, but that would be wrong. Declines in labor share and increases in profits are more pronounced in industries with rising concentration. Well, the trends in profits and in wages are notable, but I'm not so convinced about that link to competition. 
So let's take profits first. Under the winner-take-all hypothesis that I laid out, profits should be high. The winners are exactly those firms that are more productive and profitable, and they're taking share from the less profitable firms. That means overall profits go up. Now, some of today's winners might be tomorrow's losers, but then the new entrants into the market are profitable. So aggregate profits remain high, even if for any individual company, it's much more variable. And as far as wages, the companies we're talking about are bigger, which just mechanically means that their labor share falls. They have less overhead. Um, and so even if they're paying their individual employees each competitively, labor share of the total output of the company actually comes down. So I'm not sure that the link is to competition. I see why it's linked to concentration because the winner-take-all hypothesis helps un us understand concentration. It doesn't necessarily translate into a less competitive environment. Fair enough, Jeff. But let's talk about two trends that you're really going to have a tougher time explaining away. So both investment and business dynamism have also declined in the U.S. And these declines have been most severe in the industries that have become more concentrated. Let's start with investment or the rate of increase in the capital stock. And this has dropped dramatically. Since 2000, investment rates basically are half of what they used to be. And that's material. And it's really bad for the economy. Everyone benefits when investment is high. It raises productivity, which has been growing really slowly of late. It raises wages, and consumers benefit from getting new and innovative goods and services. But firms with market power really don't have as much incentive to invest. They're not as worried about being overtaken by their competitors, so they don't put as much uh, attention into innovating and investing. A related trend in the economy is the fact that it's becoming less dynamic. So there's lots of examples of this, but some of them are the fact that fewer businesses are being started and the fact that people are changing jobs less frequently. Now, the U.S. prides itself in its dynamism. A less entrepreneurial economy is something we should all be concerned about. And in my view, market power is helping to short-circuit this dynamism. And it's not difficult to understand why. People are reluctant to start new firms and hire a bunch of employees to try to compete against a firm that has a lot of market power. So, for example, you can imagine if I wanted to, to start up a new search engine to compete with Google, it would really be hard for me to raise the funding to hire the people to do so. Well, some of these trends that we're talking about here are very widespread. So, for example, you mentioned the decline in dynamism. Every single industry that we examine experienced a decline in job churn starting around 2000. So that suggests that, uh, that you know, potentially alongside market power, there are other factors that could be at play. So, for example, job mobility might be lower because of demographics, where older workers are less inclined to change jobs or move regions. Um, we also have seen a rise in two-income households, and that might make uh, that might make mobility more difficult because both workers need to find a job in a new city in order to, to justify moving not just one. Um, there's also been a lot of conservative economists talking about how zoning rules are too restrictive in high-productivity cities, and it keeps housing costs too high in those cities, so that stops workers from moving there to try to take advantage of the economic opportunity that, that that's presented. So you're making a lot of really good points, and we could go on and on about these types of influences. But let me just say, when we examine these trends jointly in our, in our research, we find that they've tended to move together. If an industry is experiencing one of them, it's experiencing all of them. And the joint trends line up well with rising concentration. And this really gives me a lot of confidence in the market power narrative, despite the conceptual appeal of the winner-take-all story. Well, I think winner-take-all might be more than just conceptually appealing, Jonathan. I think that maybe it's possible these two narratives that we're discussing are not mutually exclusive. 
so firms aren't born with market power. You don't start a firm and all of a sudden have control over prices. You need to acquire it. And it's possible that winner-take-all is a path to acquiring market power. So imagine this. An industry becomes more competitive, say because of a shock like heightened price transparency. A small number of winners emerge. All of a sudden, they look around, and there's no more competitors. That's when they can start to take advantage of their position. Now, of course, there's other means to acquire market power through mergers, which have been very high. Uh, meanwhile, antitrust enforcement has been low. Or crony capitalism, where incumbents somehow get sway over the political or the regulatory process. Yes, and I th think we definitely share a lot of common ground on the points you just made. At this point, there are enough sectors that have gone through the winner-take-all transition that we should start thinking about the end game. So is this hyper-competitive state going to be transitory or is it permanent? And if the hyper-competitive state is only transitory, we might worry that some of the major macroeconomic themes we've witnessed in recent years will intensify, such as the slow trend growth in productivity and issues with secular stagnation and low neutral interest rates. Now, I'd be foolish to say that these are all caused only by market power, but I think we can make a pretty strong and compelling case that market power is at least part of this narrative. And if firms are grabbing a bigger share of markets, we might worry about where we're headed in regard to these things. And market power is also certainly contributing to income inequality, which is a prominent issue that is getting a lot of attention from politicians. And investors should certainly be aware of the political ramifications of these influences. I think there are important market implications, too. Market power presents a binary risk for equity markets. On the one hand, companies with market power have been very profitable, and they're probably going to continue to be very profitable. They might even be more resilient in the face of a recession, which means that the equity market gains that these companies have generated are likely to continue. That's a pretty good for, story for the equity market. But there's a risk to that, which is, I think, obvious from some of the proposals that are being floated by politicians and policymakers recently. Things like uh, new regulations, uh, breaking up some of these companies. These would be enormous risks for the equity market, and particularly in sectors um, where, where the companies have accumulated market power. And so you have what I think is a very binary outcome. If nothing changes, these companies continue to do very well. But there's, I think, a growing downside risk that investors need to be watchful of, that all of the gains that are generated by this power um, uh, could dissipate. This topic is not going away. And I think proposals like these are possible topics for future podcasts. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can read detailed analyses of the macroeconomic effects of market power in The Rise of Market Power and our companion piece focusing on the retail and media sectors, both available on Barclays Live. Everyone can read Increased Corporate Concentration and the Influence of Market Power, available on barclays.com backslash IB. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com slash IB.